Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Good morning. It's nice to see all your smiling faces behind your masks. And uh, for those of you participating online, uh, it's nice to see you participating in the chat and creating community there. Um, My name's Pastor Andrew. I am uh, one of the interim co-lead pastors here at First Alliance Church. Um, We are going to be opening God's Word this morning. And um, just as we do so, I want to start with a a comment. Uh, So far on our journey in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, we've been brought into a section of the letter that has brought us into considerable tension. Um, In chapter one, after he announces the good news of God that he's so fired up about, he actually then starts to talk about the bad news. In Romans one, he builds a case against the Gentiles. And then in chapter two, he builds his case against the Jews. And now as we get into chapter three, he's actually going to take both the kids, sit them down in the room together and deal with all of humanity. And um, it reminds me, I was at the dentist this past week and uh, As the dentist was blasting my gums with water cannons and hooks, naturally my mind turned to Romans chapter 1 through 3. And it struck me that these first three chapters, Romans has us sitting in the dentist chair. It's uncomfortable. Uh, It's a place where our dirt is being exposed and, and, and dealt with. And we actually need to stay in the dentist chair to let the dentist do their work so that we can be healthy. I mean, at one point, my dentist actually asked me, are you okay? Because she was probably getting all the nonverbal cues that I was like cringing or like gripping the chair really tight. And I was like, no, of course I'm not okay. You know, my jaw is tired, my gums are bleeding, and my only comfort is the soft rock music playing, and that is no comfort to me whatsoever. But of course, I didn't say that. The strategy is to endure with stoicism, the pain we must in the dentist chair, get through it. But here's the point I want to make. We don't stay in the dentist chair because it's comfortable. We don't stay in the dentist chair because it feels okay. We stay there because we need to in order to be healthy. That I know that the dentist is removing bad stuff from me that on a day-to-day basis, let's face it, I'm not aware of, but it's there. So as we're reading Romans, and as we get into Romans 3 today, I want us to keep this in mind, um, and that to a certain extent, as we're reading it, the Word of God is reading us, and He's opening us, and He wants to show us what He wants to change, and it's good. So I invite you to come with me and to, to stay in the dentist chair. Don't flee that spot as we get into our text. Do you have a, a Bible open? Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. On, uh, the, in the Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find that on page 912. And let's give ear, for this is the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. It says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin or under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, even those who boast in the law and take confidence in the law, may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, we ask that in this moment you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Come, Spirit. And just as you inspired Paul to write these words, would you so illumine our hearts and minds that we might receive them, that we might receive what you have to say to us today. And as we open ourselves, we are conscious of the fact that, God, you are the God who speaks and it happens, that your word is performative and transformative in our lives. So Spirit, come, glorify Jesus in our midst. Make us like him, we pray in his precious name. Amen. If you think about our broader culture, I mean, it's not lost on any of us that belief in God is not to be assumed. But in general, for those who do believe in God or believe in some kind of personal divine being, the general sense is this, that a good God will give a pass to decent people who are trying their best, right? That, that a good God will, will kind of give the okay at the end of time to people who are just trying their best. And so you toil on in life, generally in our culture, and you do your best at being good, whatever that means for you. And then the big man upstairs will look at your life and say, okay. That's the general verdict of the pop spirituality that's out there. But in our text today, Paul announces a very different alternative verdict, doesn't he? And it's one that he claims is the real verdict. And you heard it, right? It's pretty clear. The verdict is this, uh, that, that humanity isn't just basically good and we just need to try and keep up our level of goodness. It's summed up in verse nine. If you look with me there in your Bible, uh, it says uh, that Jews and Gentiles alike, and in case you're wondering, that's everybody. Jews and Gentiles, all of humanity, are under sin. This is the verdict on the human condition, that we're under sin. And that's what we're going to be considering today. And as we consider this verdict, I want us to hold out for the good news that's in it, okay? Hold out for the good news. Because, let's face it, this is a hard text to read. Paul kind of unloads on humanity, right, with that string of quotes from the Old Testament, from the prophets. And he's really arguing. He's saying, listen, humanity in every way, in our thoughts, right, that that no one seeks after God, no one understands. He says that in our speech, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, and that in our actions, our, our feet are swift to shed blood. He's saying that humanity, all of humanity, and in every way, we're under sin. And as scripture holds that verdict before us, I actually want us to consider three reasons why it's really important for us to know this. 
Three reasons why, as followers of Jesus, we need to know this verdict and not ignore it, and how it actually enables us to step into what God has for us. So why do we need to know this verdict? Why does the church, why does the Bible, why do people like me insist on sin? First reason is so that we might turn to the Redeemer and be saved. This is the fundamental reason why we need to have the bad news of being under sin. It's because God wants to bring us out from under it. God exposes our need Why? Because he wants to meet our need. God exposes our need not to shame us or to to send us into despair, but his desire is to redeem and set us free to live the life we were made for. It's like a doctor giving a diagnosis. So in my late teen years, when I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, I mean, leading up to that point, I had no idea My family had no idea that there was something in me that was going to kill me. And as as doctors kind of said, hey, you should get tested, I was so skeptical. Believe me, I was like, there's no way, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, I'm 19, like I'm in the prime of health, I'm fine. I thought it was ridiculous. But then the news came, the tests came in, and the doctors said I had cancer. That was bad news, right? It's bad news. It's not what I wanted to hear. It's it's not what I would have chosen for myself. It's bad news. But you know what? It was also good. Because the worst thing that could have happened to me is that the cancer would continue to go undiagnosed in my life. That would be the worst thing. The diagnosis was bad news that does a good thing. It paves the way for the cure. See, under sin, that that diagnosis uh, of humanity, it's bad news that does a good thing for us. It's a necessary and life-saving thing. It paves the way for our redemption and our rescue. Now, it's not lost on me that this particular doctrine or idea in the Bible is one of the hardest ones for our culture to believe that there's really something called sin and that it has touched and twisted our whole world and every single part of us. I mean, uh, a lot of people, I think, have the attitude that, that this is an idea that the church advances in order to control people, right? We're trying to make people afraid. We're trying to manipulate them and enslave them somehow. And there's a temptation to dismiss the subject altogether. Now, if that's you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just entertain this for a second. That the Bible is actually telling us that humanity apart from sin, or sorry, humanity apart from Jesus is already enslaved. It's not so much that the church and the Bible and Jesus are trying to enslave you, it's that you're already enslaved and Jesus wants to set you free. Notice how the verdict in Paul's word says we are under sin. And it doesn't mean like physically under sin as in sin is squishing me, but that's, that's kind of the metaphor that we are under the sway, under the power of sin. And, and this tells us something really important, that sin isn't just the bad things we do. It's actually a power that seeks to enslave us to its will. We're under the power of sin. Friends, this means that 
Humanity's already enslaved, right? To our pathologies, to our distortions, to our physical, emotional, sexual, and psychological drives. And our experience bears this out, right? That when we just say yes to all these things in us, what happens? We turn into relational wrecking balls. We fail over and over and over again to experience the life we know we were made for, but somehow following my own desires is not getting me there. And here's the really sneaky thing, is that we're deceived about our slavery. We think we're free. We think that freedom means do what you want whenever you want. But that's not freedom. That's actually the Bible's definition of slavery. The main way sin keeps us enslaved is through that battle in our mind, through lies and deceptive ideas. We unpacked this a few weeks ago. Remember when we went all the way back to Genesis 3 and we took a deep dive uh, at Adam and Eve and what happened there in the garden? The, the snake entered in, he came at them and, and the snake didn't come at humanity with violence or coercion. What did the snake come at them with? An idea. An idea. At the heart of the idea was really two things. Uh, one, God isn't as good as he says he is. And two, you could be like him, right? God is holding out on you. And you could be like God. If only you seize this opportunity and eat the fruit. You see, the weapon of the enemy in our lives and in the world is false ideas and deception which then give birth to unbelief that we doubt the goodness of God and at the same time it gives birth to pride, right? With regards to God, we think that God's goodness is less than it is and with regard to ourselves, we think our goodness is more than it is. We bring the almighty God of the universe down to our level and we exalt ourselves up to his level, right? This is how this all takes hold and this is why C.S. Lewis called pride the complete anti-God state of mind. He described it as a spiritual cancer that can smuggle itself into the very center even of our religious life, right? This is why, as I, as I speak to the city, as I speak to culture, I'm also speaking to us as believers. Why we need to know this verdict is because pride can sneak into our piety. Pride can sneak into our church going our Bible reading, our devotional life, our relationship with one another, and we start to think that, that God has accepted us because of something we've done rather than because of something he has done. See, the reason God puts before us this, this real verdict, it's almost like a splash of water on the face, right? It's jarring. It's like, what, what do you mean? He, he wants to wake us up. He wants to bring us and our world out of deception, of thinking that we're basically good, just keep being good, but to realize we're under sin and we need a savior, someone who can set us free. That's the first reason why we need to know this verdict. The second reason why we need to know it is so that we might glorify Christ as he deserves, so that we might glorify Christ as he deserves. So unless we understand what Jesus has saved us from, we can't really understand the magnitude of the gift he's given us and we won't really glorify him appropriately, right? If I think that I'm fundamentally okay and Jesus has come along as a good moral teacher and he's just given me the lessons I need, 
He's just come to give me a tune-up. Then I'll say, thanks very much, Jesus. I'm gonna go on my merry little way now, right? You see, the magnitude of the gift of Christ has a direct impact on how we magnify him, right? So, so think about it this way. Say you're at the supermarket, okay? You're at the supermarket. Someone just mopped the floor and they didn't put up the, the slip sign or whatever, and you're walking and you slip. And someone's there, like, really almost miraculously, and they catch you and they save you from, you know, a spill. Now, that's not a life-changing thing, right? You, you would say, oh, thank you so much for doing that, but then you'd go to the checkout and you'd get on with your life and a week later, you probably wouldn't even remember that person. But imagine you need a heart transplant. Imagine you are going to die if you do not get a new heart and somebody else is a matching donor and tragically they get into a car accident, they don't make it and you get the heart transplant that you needed to save your life. That's a gift of great magnitude. And because you know the magnitude of the gift, the costliness of the gift, that it saved you from death, that it cost someone else their life, every single day you feel that heart beating. What are you going to do? You're going to give thanks. You're going to think of that person. Say, wow, I'm so thankful that I can now live. Right? The magnitude of the gift matters. And appreciating this verdict just blows our view uh, and expands our view of what Christ has done for us. I mean, think about the magnitude of his gift. That he, he is God. He is God himself who came into the world and lived that perfect, holy, flawless life that we all want to live and that we have a hard time living. And he showed us what it means to be human. Friends, he didn't have sin. And yet he became the sin bearer. He went to the cross and stood in our place so that we might stand in his place, so that we might get righteousness. This is what theologians call the great exchange, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if that's true, that there's nothing we could have done to save or justify ourselves and that Christ has done it all, I mean, then we owe him everything, right? We owe him everything. Friends, the more we appreciate the magnitude of the gift of God in Jesus Christ, the more we will magnify him with our lives. The more we will see him giving himself to us. And the more we'll give ourselves to him. If we see Jesus as anything less than our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Lord. We're not seeing him right, and we're not going to glorify him appropriately. Lastly, we need to know the verdict so that we might experience the love of God. Now, this one might seem a bit counterintuitive. We need to know the verdict that humanity is under sin in order to experience the love and grace of God. Just think about that a sec and come with me. Let me show you how this is true. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And, and this is like the gospel story prototype. It's the story that really tells all of our stories. 
It's about a son who rebels against his father because he's proud. He wants to live free of his father's influence and authority. He asks his father, he has the stones to ask his father for his inheritance while his father is still alive, basically telling his dad, hey dad, I wish you were dead, and you know what? I'm committing to living as if you were dead. And his father gives him what he asked for. He sells off his property, gives his son his inheritance in cash, and the son goes off and just spends it all in loose living. And then at the end of his binge, here's what's happened. The son discovers that the freedom he had so desperately wanted was actually slavery. That to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, turned out to be slavery. He ends up friendless, destitute, and hungry. And and there's this turning point for him. There is a turning point. In in Luke 15, 17 to 19, uh, it says this. It says, when he came to himself. That's the turning point. He comes to himself. It's this moment of clarity. And he says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm perishing here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Notice what he does here. He accepts the verdict. I have sinned. I'm not worthy. That's the acceptance of the verdict. And he turns to go home, right? Knowing the verdict turned him back to his father. And here's where grace and love just starts to break in in the story. And this is just embodying what Paul is talking about here in Romans. Um, that as he goes home, he has this grand plan, right? He knows he sinned. He knows he's not worthy. He's going to beg his father to make him a hired servant. He's not going to get the rights he had before. He's just going to be a hired servant because he knew, he was well aware that he had done wrong. But get this, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. In other words, the father doesn't cut anyone off and and stop going after them. He's looking into the distance for his son and he felt compassion on his son. He was moved deeply in his guts and he ran. He ran to his son. Which, by the way, a patriarch in the Middle East, you just don't do. And then he embraced and kissed his rebellious son who had so deeply shamed and dishonored him, which a patriarch in the Middle East does not do. And get this. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I acknowledge the verdict. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father interrupts him. It says the father said to his servants, before the son can get to the third phase of his plan to be a hired servant, the father interrupts him and actually breaks through with his love to bring him in as a fully-fledged son and member of his family once again. The father says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill him. Go to the supermarket. Buy like 80 pounds of filet mignon. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to party. Let's eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I mean, friends, God doesn't just reluctantly, begrudgingly welcome sinners home. 
he rejoices. He throws a party when sinners turn back to him. And Jesus is telling us this so that we know that at the point that we acknowledge the verdict of sin, that's actually the point where God can start to communicate his love and grace to us in a deeper way than we ever thought possible. Because God's grace and his love and the work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient. It's sufficient to deal with our sin and to bring us into the family of God, not as hired servants, which we so often um, make ourselves into, or that's our tendency, but God says, no, you are my son, you are my daughter. Full adoption. Friends, knowing the verdict enables us to live with an ever-deepening experience of the love of God, that even on your worst day, God is crazy about you. That even on your worst day, he loves you more deeply than you could have ever hoped because the cross of Christ stands as God's final word over your life. That you're forgiven, that you're accepted, and that you're loved fully. Friends, we need to know the bad news in order to live in the good news. And here's the key distinction I want to make. Some people end up making the bad news the basis of their life and they live there. That's not what I'm talking about. We do not live in the bad news. We need to know it. We live in the good news. We live in the grace of the cross. We live in the love of God the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to know the verdict so that each day we might turn to Jesus afresh and ask him to come into our weakness, to repent of the sin and the darkness that is always knocking on our door, and to ask him to enable us to glorify him as he deserves. That's actually the purpose of our life. If you're here this morning or you're watching and you're, you're, you're thinking, yeah, I feel like, you know, I have a great purpose in life. I feel like God has something bigger for me. You know, there's, there's this authentic quest in our culture to find that purpose, and that's a good thing. But here's what Scripture says is our purpose. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Christ brings us back into that purpose. That when we sing here on Sunday morning, with our brothers and sisters, and we worship and behold Jesus. That's just a foretaste of how we're gonna glorify him in all eternity. That's just a foretaste. Friends, we need to know the real verdict that humanity is under sin so that we might turn to the Redeemer and be saved, so that we might glorify Christ as he deserves, and so that we might experience the love of God all through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you speak your word for our good. And I ask that you would continue to speak to us now as we respond with a song of worship. Oh, Lord Jesus, where are you calling us to confess where we've not believed the verdict? Lord Jesus, where are you calling us to glorify you where we haven't glorified you and maybe we've, we've taken credit for ourselves? And Lord Jesus, how are you wanting to show your love to us in a deeper way? Speaking it into the depths of our soul at our point of need.
Would you do that now as we respond in worship? Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.